Greetings and welcome to Season 2 of Canada's Grey War. That's right, we're back for another 10 episodes where we're going to look at everything from the Battle of Corselet, Flying Aces, Vimy Ridge, and much more. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have several other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, From John to Justin, Pucks and Cups, and Coast to Coast. And then I do all of these podcasts full-time. The writing, the research, everything. So, every dollar you give helps keep it all going. And I truly appreciate it, and I'll thank you on the air, throughout my social media, and at the end of every episode. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok, where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. And my username is Bairdo37. If you like, you can find weekly videos about Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash CanadianHistoryX. And if you want, you can find over 700 transcripts of every podcast episode I've ever done on every single podcast I have. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. The links to all of these are also in my show notes. For two and a half months, the terrible Battle of the Somme had been fought on the Western Front. But at this point... Beyond the Newfoundlanders, there had been no Canadian troops taking part in the overarching battle, which would last from July 1st to November 18, 1916. That would change beginning on September 15th, when the Canadian Corps took part in the Battle of Corselet. After an entire summer, commanders had been desperate for reinforcements because of the heavy casualties in the Somme Offensive. In the first day of the battle alone, 57,000 British soldiers and 700 Newfoundlanders had died. Those reinforcements would come from several Commonwealth countries, including New Zealand and Canada. On September 15th, three divisions of the Canadian Corps would launch an attack on the German lines in order to capture the small village of Corselet. This battle would mark the first time that tanks were used in warfare as well. There were six tanks with one in reserve, and the tanks were slow and difficult to move, but they had a terrible effect on the morale of the Germans, who saw them as giant killing machines or land ships. Only one of the tanks would actually reach its objective in the battle, with the rest failing because of getting stuck on obstacles, being disabled by shells, or failing because of mechanical problems. Even with those problems, tanks would roll over the barbed wire and fire artillery and machine guns, and many Germans are said to have surrendered as soon as they saw the tank approach. The first glimpse of the tanks by several Canadian troops was relayed in the history of the 42nd Battalion, the Royal Highlanders of Canada. It states, quote, Tanks were first used on September 15th, and the glimpse which officers of the 42nd had of them the evening before was the first any member of the battalion had actually seen through strange tales of new and a fearful weapon had been whispered about for some time before. Those who saw the tanks that night will not soon forget the spectacle. Two of the 42nd officers' horses were stampeded, as were many others along the road, and morale of all the troops was high as the prospect of what was in store for the unfortunate enemy on the morrow." End quote. Fred Mackenzie would write in his book, Through the Hindenburg Line, the following about tanks, quote, I do not wonder that some of the wounded at Corselet, half delirious with pain, but yet able to move, crept up towards the tanks as they lumbered slowly back on that day, and stroked them and babbled over them and spoke to them endearingly as if they were living things. They realized that mechanical genius had come to their aid, to save some of the fearful slaughter which advanced in the past had too often meant, End quote. Another important innovation at this battle would become a Canadian staple in battles, and one that would help turn the tide of many Allied troops in the coming years. 
It was a creeping barrage which allowed troops to move forward as artillery fell in front of them, obscuring their approach and forcing the Germans to take cover. Often the shells would fall only 91 meters in front of the first line of troops. At 6.20 a.m. on September 15th, the 2nd and 3rd Canadian Divisions began to attack the German lines, accompanied by a tank for the first time in the war, while a creeping artillery barrage moved in front of them. Unfortunately, the barrage malfunctioned and lifted 100 meters before the German line, leaving the Canadians open to machine gun fire. With the barrage, despite the failure and tank, the Canadians were able to overtake the German trenches and a sugar refinery by 8 a.m. At the sugar factory, Canadian troops were able to take 125 German prisoners. In the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry War Diary, the following is written for that day, quote, Battle of Corselette, 2nd Division attacked at 6 a.m. and captured Sugar Factory. PPCLI moved up to Usna Hill at 9.30 a.m. and took part in a surprise attack at 6.15 p.m. The 2nd Canadian Division attacked astride the Albert Bapalm Road with the objective of taking the trenches in front of the village, while the 3rd Division attacked on the left to provide flank protection. General Bing then decided that he could either halt the attack or continue with the 2nd attack to take the village. He decided he would take the village. At 6 p.m., the French-Canadian 22nd Battalion and the Nova Scotia Rifles attacked and captured the village with the help of two tanks and hand-to-hand fighting. The decision by Bing meant the troops attacked the village while medics were still removing men from the battlefield. They also attacked in full daylight with little in the way of artillery. The troops advanced two kilometers to the outskirts of the village, sustaining heavy casualties. Over the next three days and three nights, the Germans would launch counterattacks, all of which the Canadians were able to push back. The Canadians were low on food, water, and ammunition and had to use salvaged ammunition from German weapons that had been left behind. On September 17th, the men received their first meal in three days after getting a supply of water and food. They were then ordered to attack the German trench on the outskirts of the city. On September 18th, the 1st Canadian Division under Major General Arthur Currie would relieve the 5th Brigade on the front line and would continue to fight off the German counterattacks on the village. Robertson Perry would write a book, The Turning Point, Battle of the Somme, and he would write the following about the September 15th battle, quote, Our attack was delivered at 6 o'clock in the morning on a front of about 6 miles, the thrust being delivered generally northwards on a line pivoting to the left of the Bapalm Road. On one narrow point of the front we were held up throughout the day. At one point in Highwood, we were delayed and had hard fighting for some hours. Everywhere else on the whole front we swept all before us, shattering the German third main line of defense and making an advance of from 1 to 2 miles, by the end of the day, we had taken 4,000 and three new villages. It was a victory on a thrilling scale. End quote. Captain B.G. Languedoc would write home and relate his battle experience. He would state, quote, Through bits of trenches, over and into shell holes, over dead and wounded, on we went till we reached our jumping-off point. Two minutes we rested, and we needed it. I had just been hit by a piece of shell under the left wing. The thing had knocked my wind out, but as soon as I was but as I was bleeding very little, I crawled into a shell hole and rested with the others. After resting, and with the barrage that soon followed, his men advanced and captured several Germans. He would write, quote, You should have seen how scared they were. I pulled the steel helmet off the leader and left three men in charge to march them back to the battalion headquarters. On we went for more, and after another hundred yards, thud. I had another, but this time it was a good one and I could go no further. I crawled into a shell hole and my men immediately put on temporary dressing and started to carry me back. End quote. Lieutenant Colonel R.P. Campbell, who was called by his men the Dear Little Colonel, was killed by a piece of shrapnel hitting his chest. He would live for 20 minutes before passing away. 
Among the medics at the front, there was a dressing station nearby that was in full operation with 12 surgeons working day and night, 12 in each shift, at 12 different tables. In relating about the pressures of the medical officers, it was stated, quote, At the height of the action, the officer in command worked for 72 hours without sleep, with the steadfast Yorkshire courage that made him the admiration of men. After three days and three nights, he laid down upon a stretcher amid the debris. End quote. In the French-Canadian battalion, 800 men took part in the assault, and only 118 would remain after three days of fighting. The Victoria Daily Times would report on the bravery of the French-Canadians and how it would impact Francophone MP Henri Barossa, who was against conscription, and it would state, quote, The dash and bravery with which the French-Canadian regiment took part in Corselet must have made Henri Barossa grit his teeth with rage. Before this war is over, Henri will have qualified for a straitjacket, end quote. The Vancouver province would write of the battle, quote, Of two attacks of the Canadians on the 15th, the French Canadians were participants in the afternoon when they forced up to take the village, on the outskirts of which was a sugar refinery. They pushed their way through heavy barrage and rattling machine gun fire and making a haul of 47 prisoners, including several officers, end quote. One officer would write home, quote, Our boys did great work with the bayonet. The Germans scooted like rats and the shell holes were full of them, end quote. The 4th Canadian Rifles, which played a major role in helping to take the village, would see two officers and 32 men killed, and four officers and 52 wounded. The 21st Battalion, Eastern Ontario Regiment, would see 27 officers killed or wounded, along with many soldiers. The 31st Battalion would suffer 63 dead, 131 wounded, and 53 missing. In talking of the battle, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Louis Tremblay of the French Canadian Battalion would say, quote, If hell is as bad as what I've seen at Corselet, I would not want my worst enemy to go there. End quote. While this was the first Canadian battle in the Somme, it would not be the last. By the time the battle ended in November, Canadian casualties would number more than 24,000, representing 24% of the total Canadian fighting force at the time. I'm going to look at some of the fallen from the battle now. Captain Jimmy Bertram was the president of the McGill chapter when war broke out, and he went to France to serve with the 20th Battalion, joined by his friend, Captain Frisco Morkill, who was the machine gun operator. Bertram was serving as the staff captain of the 1st Infantry Brigade when on September 22nd, after the attack was done, he was killed while out on reconnaissance by a shell. His friend, Captain Morkill, was killed on September 15th when he went over the top after the signal was given. He was shot in the head while assisting another officer. Prior to his death, Morkill asked that if he were to die, he wanted the following printed on his grave, quote, I believe that I am only one of countless thousands that have died content that England lives, end quote. William Sorter was a young man from Saskatchewan who had served with the Northwest Mounted Police when he enlisted to fight overseas and joined the 53rd Battalion. In the battle, he would be severely wounded in the side and had to spend the next year of his life in the hospital. He would return home and work as a fireman for the CNR until 1934. Lieutenant Alan Rutledge was part of the advance and would be severely wounded in the attack, but took time to write about his experience before sadly dying from wounds five days later. He would say, quote, just in line to let you know that I am down here near the base in the hospital, and I'm getting on quite well. My wounds, though not serious, are very painful, and I have to keep very quiet. There is some metal still in me, which they will dig out one of these days, I suppose. They also discovered a shrapnel wound in my back that I was not aware of. It does not amount to much, though. I have seen the latest casualty lists, but before they took me out, I gathered we had about six officers wounded, and of those, three company commanders. I hope that is not the case. The battalion did wonderfully well, as I was sure they would. The men went across as if they were on parade. We certainly had rotten luck with the bombers. I had one NCO and two men hit before we left the assembly point. 
End quote. He would continue in his letter, quote, I cannot speak too highly, sir, of the courage my bombers displayed. They were splendid and I could not have wished for better men. They are going to send me to the Blighty after my operation. I believe so, I am afraid it will be a month or so before I can get back to the battalion. I hope that when I am well enough to come back that you will ask for me as I should not enjoy going to any other unit after being with the 42nd. End quote. The fact he believed he would return to the front, but would in reality die only days later after the letter, is truly tragic. Captain Abel Boudry would lose his life in the battle. His major would write to his family, quote, The sacrifices were necessary and were given by all without a murmur, without any hesitation, stoically, heroically. Our Canadians know death. Abel was struck on the evening of the 15th around 6.30. At the head of his platoon, he crossed a terrible shell-swept area in safety, and when near Corselet Cemetery, a German gun opened fire on him, and he was shot in the heart. Death was instantaneous. A simple cross marks the spot where another hero lies. End quote. Captain John Stairs had an unfortunate bit of bad luck during the battle. A letter home from a fellow officer to his wife stated, quote, John was hit in the first part of the advance, and while coming out to the dressing station, was hit again and must have been instantly killed. End quote. Lieutenant A.S. Keto would die when a sniper shot him on September 16th. In a letter home to his wife, Major George Cook writes, quote, At daylight, the morning of the 16th, the artillery liaison officer had to be relieved by an officer from any battery. Lieutenant Keto was next for duty. So, with a soldier as a guard, he left the guns to proceed to battalion headquarters, which had been at Corselet all night. I last saw him in my telephone dugout when I gave him instructions just before daylight. About 1 p.m., the soldier returned and told me of his death. When just arriving at Corselet, he was shot by a German sniper from their line. He fell forward and never moved again, having been, as we afterwards found, shot under the left arm through the heart. End quote. Private E.W.S. Herbert was wounded, and he would write home to his mother, quote, My wound is only slight and is healing already. I was hit by a splinter in the upper right arm. I do not expect to stay here long. I was wounded in the village of Corselet. Lieutenant Orr Tyndale was injured in the battle as well, when heavy machine gun fire struck him in the leg. He would describe the injury in a letter home stating that his leg was very stiff, but with care he was hoping to recover full use of it. There were many medals awarded to Canadian soldiers during the Battle of Corselet as well. Captain Joseph Henry Chappelle of the 22nd Battalion was awarded the Military Cross for the capture and defense of the village against 13 counterattacks. He was wounded in the defense and continued to fight. He would later be promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, and before being diagnosed with shell shock in 1917, was allowed to leave the Army. Captain John Edwards, who was previously a musketry instructor for the 3rd Division and then became a machine gun officer, was also awarded the Military Cross. Edwards was severely injured in the battle and would spend some time in a French hospital. When he enlisted, military authorities wanted to keep Edwards in Canada, but he insisted on going. The Kingston Whig Standard would say, quote, is regarded as one of the best musketry instructors in Canada. End quote. Corporal Arthur Fleming of the 26th Battalion would lead a party that captured the enemy's strongpoint in the village. By the end of the battle, four days later, only Fleming and one other man remained alive. Sergeant Frank Mahew would be awarded the Military Medal for his work in the battle, and he would write on October 31, 1916, quote, The fighting is very hard, but on our front, we have them all right. They don't fight as hard now as they did on September 15th. They look downhearted, but we feel that way ourselves sometimes, owing to the mud and other things we have to contend with in the trenches. End quote. A Victoria Cross, the highest medal, was awarded to Private John Chipman Kerr, who took 62 prisoners by himself, as well as over 200 yards of trench with only a rifle during the second day of fighting. He would lose the fingers on one hand in the process, but he would survive the war and return to his home in the Peace River area of Alberta.
I want to close out this episode with a story that shows that even those on the other side of the war were humans just fighting for their country. In the book, The Battle of the Somme, William Heinemann says of two Germans who were captured in the battle, quote, Two German doctors helped to dress our wounded and worked very bravely and steadily under shell fire for many hours. One of them objected to having a sentry put near his dugout. I am not a fighting man, he said. I did not help to make this war. My work is for humanity, and your wounded are the same to me as ours, poor, suffering men, needing my help, which I am glad to give. End quote. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the Battle of Corselet. Next week, we're looking at the World War I Flying Aces. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to Canada ehx.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, WarMuseum.ca, Canada.ca, Vimy Ridge Foundation.ca, Five Strenuous Years, Prairie Reflections, the Medical Services, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, Roll of Honor. Governor General's Foot Guards, Alberta Past and Present, Ottawa Citizen, Montreal Gazette, the Vancouver Province, and the North Bay Nugget. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.